Tilly Smith was <clears throat> 10 years old. And she was excited. How many of you here are 10? <clears throat> Excuse me. Any 10-year-olds? I see a hand in the back. Okay, I thought there might be more 10-year-olds. Well, Tilly was 10. And she was excited. Her family was going on vacation. Actually, where she's from, they call it holiday. And they were going to go to a place where it was warm. How many of you 10-year-olds or young children like sandy beaches? Okay, even my wife raised her hand. She loves sandy beaches. So Tilly was going to a sandy beach, and they were going to spend some time there for holiday. And she had no idea what was in store and how her life would change from this experience. So they woke up this significant day, <clears throat> and they had breakfast like any other. They enjoyed it together like they typically did. They were so excited, they went out to the beach and they played. Her mother and her father were there and her brothers and sisters, and they were having a great time playing on the beach. At lunchtime, they went in to eat, and as they got done eating lunch, they came back out and they went to the beach, and then Tilly noticed something different. Something was unusual. She began to see the water on the beach began to froth, like on top of a root beer float. And she thought, hmm, that doesn't seem right. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we are gathered here today, we're gathered because we need more of you. Lord, save us in spite of ourselves. We ask that your spirit be here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is relating to the disciples answers to the questions they had. They asked several questions, thinking it was all one question. As they came out of the temple of Jerusalem and down the steps, Jesus said not one stone would be left on top of the other. And they were surprised, and they said, tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming, and what is the end of the world? Those were all different events, but they thought it was the same thing, and so Jesus answered them. But here Jesus is talking about the sign of his coming. Matthew 24 and verse 37. The Bible says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Luke says it a little differently. He says, just as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just as in the days of Noah. What was it like in the days of Noah so that we can know what it will be like at the coming of the Son of Man? What was it like? Well, Jesus goes on to say a little bit more about that in the next verse, next two verses, verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept, swept from all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now I like to eat, and in fact I'm married. And I'm wondering, what is the point Jesus is trying to bring across here? They were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that the ark or the flood came and took them all away. There must be some significant things here that we should take notice of. And in fact, just reading in these verses alone, we can pick up some clues. They were eating and drinking, something we all do every day. We all eat, we all drink. If we didn't, we would die. They were eating and drinking. They were going about the regular, common, daily affairs of life, not realizing the storm that was about to break upon them. They were unaware, Jesus said, of what was coming. Why? Because their focus was on the daily grind, eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Their focus was on their own relationships, irrespective of the relationship they needed to have with God. Their focus was on earthly things, not aware of the storm that was brewing. Just so, Jesus said, will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. I would ask you the question, what is the daily grind doing to you? Eating and drinking day after day, just the normal round of affairs becomes mundane. And so we look for pleasures and excitement 
to kind of keep our mind engaged. We get on Facebook and we scroll. I know, I've been caught. Oh, I've been scrolling on here for 30 minutes. I can't believe I wasted that much time. I mean, it's not a waste to see your pictures. I really like them. (laughs) But it can consume a lot of time. The regular, ordinary, mundane parts of life can at times begin to get our focus off of the critically important things in life we need to be focused on. Marriage and giving in marriage, these are important things, lovely things. But they should not detract or minimize our relationship to God. In fact, they should enhance our relationship with God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. And I think we can gain a little more insight. Jesus gives us a little sneak peek into this, but let's go to Genesis 6 and see a little more about what was happening in the days of Noah to see what might be happening in our day and how we can be aware. Genesis 6, verse 1. I'm reading in the English Standard Version, so if you're reading a different translation, it might sound a little differently. 6, verse 1. But when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So we see a number of things in these verses. We see sons of God. We see daughters of men. We see that they took wives. Each of these is significant, and we should see what they mean. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. Who were these sons of God? Now, it can be tempting to go to a commentary and pull it out and see what it has to say about this. But in fact, we have the commentary right here, the Bible. And if we read in context of what it says, we can indeed find out who the sons of God are. In fact, there's some very crazy theories out there about who the sons of God might be. But let's just go right here to what the Bible has to say. Let's go to Genesis chapter 5, right before it. Genesis 5 and verse 1, we see this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of man. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them uh, man, and they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So we see there's a genealogy that begins, beginning with Adam, who was created in the image of God, and then Seth, all the way down to the time of Noah, and we get the story that we read in Genesis 6. So we have this list of men that descended down from from Adam. Now it's intriguing who is named in this list. It goes from Adam, doesn't mention Abel, of course he's dead at this time, doesn't mention Cain, and it mentions Seth. Goes to the thirdborn, and from there it continues on. Now I think there's a distinct reason why. Let's go to Luke chapter three, We're going to look at Luke's genealogy, Luke 3, and I think it's verse 23. Luke 3 and verse, nope, yep, 23. Luke 3 and verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of 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 the son of, all the way down to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we see the same genealogy in reverse order that we read in Genesis chapter five. In fact, Cain and Abel are skipped. It goes from Seth to Adam to God. All of these were individuals who received their faith directly from God. They were children of God. They were children of faith. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter four and notice something interesting about Seth. Genesis four and verse 26. Genesis four and verse 26. The Bible says, to Seth also was was born a son and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is why the genealogy goes through Seth and not through Cain, certainly not through Abel. The genealogy goes this way because 
through Seth, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This genealogy is a list of people who called on the name of the Lord. Why are they sons of God? Because they were the children of God. They were his children because they gave him their life. They called on his name and he was their savior. These sons of God were faithful because of what God had done in their father's lives. It was passed on from one generation to the next. So we go to Genesis 6 and we see that these sons of God, these faithful men, these that had received the ability to call on the name of the Lord began to do something different. Instead of carrying on the faithfulness from one generation to another, something happened. It says that they saw the daughters of men were attractive. Now I think my wife is extremely attractive. I don't think that's the problem. Who are the daughters of men? They are different from the sons of God. The sons of God are these faithful ones that have come down from generation to generation. The daughters of men would not be faithful ones. Now the Bible tells us that we need to be very careful about who we marry. In fact, let's look at a text. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. The Bible gives some very specific counsel about marriage. 6 and verse 14. Now, if this is not you, if you you didn't follow this counsel, it's okay. You need to stay married to whoever God has you married to. You've covenanted before God to be with him for life, and you should be. This is counsel for those who are not married. Genesis 6, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? God's counsel is that when you marry, you should marry a believer. So those of you that are not married, I'm not gonna have you raise your hand, but you're looking down right now. Oh, not all of you. Okay, I see some of you looking up. When you are choosing a life partner, beware of what it said in Genesis chapter six, that a distinct change happened in society because young people began to marry outside of their faith. And we saw the reason why. Because they were attractive. They began to marry others, not because they were a believer, but because they were attractive. That which motivated them was simply swipe right, swipe left. Some of you understand what I mean. Are they attractive or not? In fact, when young people get together and they talk about the other gender, like, what do you think about him? Is he cute? Oh, he's kind of cute. What about him? Oh, yeah, he's cute. Yeah. What about her? Yeah, she cute. She cute. It's all about cuteness. But according to the word of God, the first primary thing that should be considered is not cuteness. Are they a believer? In fact, godliness is beautiful. It is beautiful. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we read about a man who was well known for his habit of getting married. Over and over and over again, he married and married and married, not choosing believers, but choosing because of other motivations. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father was. His wives turned his heart away. What is going on in the story in Genesis chapter 6? We see marriages not founded with God as the center of their home, but marriages based on attraction alone. That will only last so long when you get old and wrinkly, when you put on a little weight, when things change. Someone once said, men marry their wives thinking they will never change, and wives marry their men thinking they will change them. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 25. Nehemiah chapter 13. This is just before Psalms. Nehemiah 13, verse 25. 
Nehemiah says, and I confronted them. I cursed them. He was actually pretty angry at these people. In fact, he did something that was pretty aggressive. And he says, I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. He was not happy. In fact, he was angry. Why could he be so angry? Because the children of Israel had been slaughtered. They had been taken captive for years. God had released them from their captivity to come back here again, and here they were doing the same thing that brought them into captivity in the first place. Nehemiah was angry because people had died for what they were doing, and what they were doing was careless. They were spitting in God's face. He had given specific counsel. They had seen historically how what they were doing was wrong. And so Nehemiah chastens them. And he says, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? So the children of Israel were marrying those not of their faith, were given counsel in God's word, that we should not marry unbelievers. If you're not married today and you're considering marriage in the future, your number one priority of marriage should be finding someone who's a believer. Not someone who says they're a believer, someone who is a believer. There's a difference, would you agree? All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter six, verse two. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. How is it you choose a spouse? What is it that a godly person would do? We actually have a biblical example of this. We have someone in the Bible whose marriage was sweet. It was beautiful. It was a lovely thing. Would you like to see their story? Let's go to Genesis 24. Genesis 24. We're going to see this story, and in here there are practical tips on choosing a spouse. Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, it doesn't say here, but I believe this is Eliezer, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. That seems a little weird to us now, but in those days it was a way of making a promise. Put your hand under my thigh that I may... um, Make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Abraham knew what we're talking about. When you choose a wife, it needs to be a believer. And Abraham wanted for his son someone that was a believer. Promise me, he said, that you will choose someone for my son who is a believer. Now we should notice something here, young people. It's Abraham talking to his servant about the spouse for his son. Now, we are so independent in America. Don't tell me. If your parents give you a suggestion, that means that's someone you should not be interested in. Am I right? But here in God's word, Abraham had good wisdom to help his son in. You know, it's a fact that your parents have lived longer than you. And they know you better than any person on this planet. Who better to give insight into who you're to marry than your parents? Isaac trusted his father. We see this in Genesis. He trusted him with his life. Young people, if you want good counsel on who to marry, ask your parents. Mom and dad, Please, share with me, what advice do you have? Is there someone that you see that's a believer that you would recommend to me? You know me. Who do you think would fit well with me? Abraham was talking with a godly man, his servant. We should take counsel. If you don't have someone, a parent that you can talk to, there are godly people that you can talk to. Ask counsel from those that are older than you. It seems most young people, when they're deciding on someone to date and marry, they ask their peers. Ask someone that's older and wiser than you. Is there someone that you would recommend? Perhaps the person I'm with currently. Do you have any advice for me? Could you see them as being a life partner for me? Do you have any suggestions? Your marriage is critical. On it almost hangs your destiny. 
Not completely, but it will affect your happiness for the rest of your life or unhappiness. This is a critical decision. Now, if you're going to go out and buy a car, you'd probably ask your parents. What do you think about this one? If you're going to buy a house, you'd probably ask your parents. The single biggest decision of your life, why would you not ask your parents? Abraham was counseling with his servant. Please, find a godly woman. So his servant says, I I will go back. So he travels back there. And then we see in verse 12. And the servant said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. The servant was seeking God for wisdom to know who should be the spouse of Isaac. Point number two. When you are looking to find a spouse, trust that God can lead. Trust that God cares and he knows. We we aren't deists. We don't believe that God created the world and spun into existence and he stood back and watched. No, he wants to be intimately involved in our life. Do you think he knows you want to marry someone? He knows. He cares. Ask him for wisdom and he will give you wisdom. Oh Lord, God of my master, please grant me success today and so he prays this prayer and after he finishes praying this young lady comes walking down now I want to show you something in verse 16 verse 16 the young woman was very attractive very attractive godly people can be attractive in fact godliness is the greatest attractiveness there is She was very attractive. And I think there was more to her beauty than her outward appearance. As you see the experience of this young lady, she comes down and she says, excuse me, sir, are you thirsty? Now she sees an old man. She sees a servant. She has no idea that talking to this man will lead her to her beloved. You have no idea who you're talking to, how they are going to impact your life. But she came forward with hospitality. Sir, how may I help you? Now that's not normal for young people today. Usually they're in their own little group here or their own little group there of young people. But you know, young people, when you mix and mingle with old people, they're a blessing. This old man was a blessing in her life. In fact, her life was about to change forever because of this old man. You don't, might not know, but if you talk to someone with wisdom, They will put wisdom into your life and can change your life in ways that you had no idea, especially if they're godly old people. They have had years of making mistakes and know the areas of danger. Check in with the old. (laughs) Check in with the old. She said, sir, may I get you something to drink? That's beautiful. When you see someone that's selfish, that's snobbish, that's all concerned about themselves. Is that really attractive? What is so beautiful about someone who loves to serve others? Young people, when you are looking for a spouse, number one, what's the number one? Are they a believer? Number two, check in with your parents. Number three, ask godly people. Number four, communicate with God about it. I don't know why that's number four, but it's in the chronology of the story, okay? Number five, Are they others-oriented? Do they like to serve? Are they giving themselves in behalf of others, or are they selfish? Now, for those of us that are married, we know this is a very important point. In fact, much of life's bitterness is about, in marriage, is the problem of what you expect. I expect he will meet my needs this way. I expect she will meet my needs this way. There becomes frustration and bitterness in marriage because we are expecting. But this girl didn't come expecting. She came serving. The true happiness that's to be found in marriage isn't about expecting. It's about giving. This girl was serving. And so she said, may I get you a drink? And she gave him a drink and she said, oh, you have all these camels. Can I get them water as well? Now, this was no small offer. (laughs) Camels drink a lot. What's the other thing that's very attractive here? This girl knew how to work, 
and she wasn't scared of it. She was willing to serve, even if it meant hard work. That's beautiful. If you're looking for a spouse, look for someone that likes to work. That's someone that has energy. They will get things done. Now, I have to say, I don't always tell my daughters this. I have told them at times, when you are considering a spouse, make sure you find someone that's good at gaming, who just sits down all day and plays games, hardly sees the light of day, and this way you can feel needed. And they just play games all the time, and you can cook them meals, and you can bring them food, and then you can get excited when they pass to the next level. They always roll their eyes at me. Hard workers. It's not something that you inherit from your parents. Any person that has work ethic has earned it. Young people, learn how to work hard. It's beautiful. If you're looking for someone to marry, find someone that works hard, that serves, that loves God, who is a true believer. And God indicated this is the one. And she and her two true love were united. Very attractive. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 give excellent counsel for those that are considering marriage. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your, oh, but he's so cute. My parents say I shouldn't. My friends say he's a jerk, but he's so cute. Makes me feel special. Do I see him serving others? No. He's usually in the mirror or on his phone. He's great at games. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, and he will direct your paths. God will guide you to the one he would have you to spend your life with and what joy there will be for you. We go back to Genesis 6 and we see the story here is not that way. The sons of God were finding the daughters of men attractive and they were marrying them. It says, and they took their wives as they chose. That word took, lachem, is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, let's keep Adam and Eve out of the garden lest they reach their hand and take the fruit and eat of it and live forever. This taking of something that doesn't belong to them. These, these men were taking something that did not belong to them. And it says, and wives of those that they chose. I believe it's right here where polygamy started. Marrying one wife after another wife after another wife. And bitterness was the result. Now we live here in America. We don't know what polygamy is like. But I lived in Africa, Larry. You lived in Africa. You know what it's like. Children, they grow up. Their, their mother is not the favored mother. They're mistreated, they're misaligned, there's bitterness in the home, there's strife in the home, there's bitterness in the home. Polygamy is wrong in all circumstances. God is not honored when this happened. Jesus said they were marrying and given marriage and society was breaking down at a fundamental level. Homes were broken. In fact, we read in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. This was violence in homes also. Bitterness, anger, disappointment, sadness. And God saw the earth, verse 12, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the earth had corrupted their way on the earth. That word corrupt right there is the same word that's used in verse 13 where God says, behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That word destroy is the same word as corrupt. For all flesh has destroyed the earth. Behold, it was destroyed. Marriages were being destroyed. Families were being destroyed because of their thoughts. Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great and that the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought was evil when a husband said something to his wife, it was evil. When she said something back to him, it was evil. When children talked to their parents, it was evil. Their thoughts were evil. Their actions were evil. They were corrupt, completely, utterly corrupt. Jesus said they were eating and drinking. What kind of eating and drinking do you think they were doing? They were destroying their bodies, right? 
We said the earth was destroyed. They were destroying their bodies by what they were eating. Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Are people destroying their bodies by what they are eating today? Have mercy. The food we eat. I'm even destroyed. I'm learning to like salad, folks. Be honest with you. Been a vegetarian my entire life, and I've never liked salad. My wife is like, Chris, you're going to die unless you eat salad. So I'm learning. Our tastes get acclimated to grease and oil and all these things, and we destroy our bodies with these things, and our minds are affected. And so we see in Genesis 6, the whole world, their thoughts were evil continually, and a lot of it had to do with what they were eating, so said Jesus. In fact, Jesus found this to be such a significant point that as he began his ministry, he found victory over diet. We need to find victory there too. I'm working on it. Pray for me. Pray for you. Eating and drinking. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I don't think we realize what our sin causes the heart of God. When we inflict pain on another, God's heart feels that. When pain is inflicted on us, God's heart feels that. When my children are hurting because someone said something painful, I hurt. You know what I mean, parents? You hurt when your children hurts. Imagine having millions of children and sensing every single hurt they feel in your heart. God was grieved at this and he decided in his infinite wisdom that it was time for this to end. And so verse seven, I will blot out man whom I have created. God made the decision because he's the sovereign of the universe that this destruction must stop. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? There are those that say, well, God can't, God can't do that. Like he's love, he can't stop this. So he just has to back away and kind of let it happen, no. God is the king, the sovereign of the universe, and when he decided that this must end, he has a moral obligation as the ruler of the universe to determine when things must end. In fact, he holds us accountable for everything we do. God doesn't turn a blind eye to our actions. This must stop. I will blot out man whom I have created. And so he determined how long that would, uh, that would be, verse three, and his days shall be 120 years. God said, this time there will be probation. During this time, I will have a period that you can change from your wicked ways like Nineveh. Verse eight, this is powerful. Verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. My translation says favor, favor, grace. In a world of wickedness, in a world where every thought was evil continually, Noah found something better. He found something worth hanging on to. He found grace. Just this summer, I was driving up in West Virginia, and I got pulled over <clears throat> for speeding. Honestly, I didn't realize I was going that fast. And he asked me, sir, did you realize you were speeding? I was speeding? I'm being honest with you. I was lost, I was trying to find my way, it was dark, anyway. Uh, I am so sorry, I'm just traveling here trying to find my way and, and he says, listen, I understand. Just keep, it, keep your speed down, okay? He gave me grace. I didn't deserve it. I was going over the speed limit. I deserved the ticket. I didn't realize I was going over, but I deserved the ticket. I was doing it. Noah deserved judgment, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Is grace worth finding? Now, we all seem to think our relationship with God is personal. It's just between me and Jesus. 
But this story teaches something a little different. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he lived. And you exist today because of it. The grace Noah found provided grace for you and me today. Now, Noah didn't provide grace, let me be clear. Noah is not our savior, but because one man found grace worth finding, it opened the door to the rest of us to have grace as well. What we choose to accept, God in our life impacts others. It isn't about just me and Jesus. Jesus and me can make a difference in someone else's life. Noah's life made a difference for the rest of the world because he found grace. I have a question for you. Have you found God's grace? Has it changed your life? Is it something better? Is it something worth hanging on to? Do others know that you have his grace? Is it evident in your life that his grace is there? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't in the eyes of the church. It wasn't others that see me coming to church. It wasn't those that saw me put some offering in the plate. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the eyes of the Lord that make a difference. It's the eyes of the Lord that change our life. We see in the very next verse, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man or a just man. Different translations. He was a righteous man. Noah was righteous. Wow. How was Noah righteous? What made Noah righteous? It can only be what we read in the previous verse. The grace of God made him righteous. In fact, I want to share with you a few texts about righteousness. I have them here because there's a several of them I want to read to you. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. This righteousness that Noah had was not his own because the best that he could do was polluted with selfishness. Hebrews verse 11, 11, chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The Bible says the righteousness Noah had here was by faith faith. Genesis 15 tells us about Abraham, how God made him a promise, and Abraham believed the promise of God, and the verse, verse 6 says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted to him for righteousness. As we believe in the word of God, it has power to change our life that we become the people he wants us to be. By faith, we are made righteous. Philippians 3.9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Jeremiah 51 verse 10, The Lord has brought forth our righteousness. We don't bring it forth ourselves. Noah was a righteous man. Why? Because of faith in the word of God. Because he found grace to change him. And then it goes on to the next verse, or it continues, it says, there's four things we see here. He was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God, and he had three sons. He was blameless. Noah was blameless. What does that mean that he was blameless? When I think of a description of what that might look like, blameless. I think of Daniel. You think of Daniel? Daniel chapter, chapter 6. They were trying to find something about Daniel that they could accuse him. They could find nothing. He drove the speed limit all the time. He paid his taxes. He didn't lie. He always told the truth. They could find nothing that Daniel was doing wrong. He was blameless. They said, oh, we can only find something against him if we can get him to do it against his God. Daniel was a Blameless man. Sorry, I had another text here I wanted to share with you. Blameless, blameless, blameless. Ah, yes, that's it. 
Here it is. This was seen in Noah's life. Noah was this. He had love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This was Noah. Noah was a man in whom the Spirit of God filled. In fact, in fact, we also see this in Noah. I'm not going to tell you where it is because you'll figure it out here in just a second. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Was Noah a kingdom man? Was he a son of God? Yeah, he must have been poor in spirit. He must have been humble. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think Noah mourned about his sinful condition. That's why he needed the grace of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Did Noah inherit the earth? Literally, he did. Noah must have been a very meek man. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Did Noah have righteousness? He must have hungered and thirst for it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall have mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you think Noah was persecuted? Certainly. This describes Noah. He was a righteous man. He was blameless. He was a man that represented God. In fact, the scripture says he walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? We experientially live out the truth of God's word in our life. Noah had a relationship with him. Then it says he had three sons. What do you think his sons saw? You know, the hardest place to be a Christian is at home. Like your family knows if you're the real deal. They know if God is alive in your life. You can't hide it there. You can hide it from all the rest of us. Happy Sabbath, Chris. Happy Sabbath. Good to see you all. God bless you. But at home, that's where the real rubber meets the road. What did Noah's family see in him? What did his wife see? Ephesians 5, I think, sums up what his wife saw. Noah loved his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Noah loved his wife as his own body. I think Noah was a loving man, and it was seen in his home. Why do you say that, Chris? Well, the reason I say that is the only ones that really believed him was his family. Everyone else said this man has lost his rocker. But his family believed that Noah had been transformed by the power of God. His family experienced the grace of God, the power of God in their life because one man was willing to stand up for God regardless of what the world said. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man is near. God is looking for those who in their home they will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who in their home, they will live out these beautiful truths. Who are meek and loving and kind and humble and blameless. Revelation chapter 14 describes a group of people standing on Mount Zion. They had the character of God written on their forehead. And in verse um, 5 it says, in their mouth was found no lie, for they are blameless. God will have a group of people like Noah by which his character is revealed to a world. God wants nothing more than a world to see in these people a revelation of his love for a dying world. But he wants it in your home. He wants it in your home. Noah's family was convinced and Noah's family made it safely into the ark. Is your family safe? Are they with you? 
Will they make it safe in the ark? Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah, make yourself an ark. And he gives him a description of how to do this. Did Noah save himself? Noah didn't make any trees. Noah didn't give himself life. Noah didn't give himself grace. His righteousness was of God by faith. Noah responded to the word of God in his life. Noah responded to that, and his response connected him with life. Noah Noah was given specific instructions on building the ark. What if he simply said, you know what? Thank you, God, for your instructions. I appreciate that. I know that's what's best for me, but I'm not really convinced it's true for me. For me, you know, it's good for you, but it may not be good for me. And so I might modify some of these plans a little bit. I know you designed it a certain way, but I think it's okay if I adjust things, don't you, God? I mean, as I see it. No, Noah followed what God had said specifically. God has given details in his word that lays out his plan for our life. And we could say, oh, thank you, God, I appreciate that. I'm not convicted of that yet. But it's at your own detriment. You don't follow the word of God explicitly. Explicitly as he lays out in his word. That's why I'm trying to eat salad. That's what God gave us to eat originally, right? Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Noah, we're told, was a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. He was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was preaching and building for 120 years. Now, some of you think our outreaches are long. Wow. Oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, we've been out for two hours. I'm just, oh. Noah's carrying timbers, and when he gets done, he gets up and he preaches. He's a preacher of righteousness. Some of us get tired with the same message. We've been preaching of the three angels' message for as long as I can remember. Don't we have something new? And so we began to get progressive and find other avenues of uh, sharing what we think is truth. God's message does not change. For 120 years, it was the same message. Noah was called to be faithful from the beginning to the end. People's lives were at stake that he delivered the message just as God had given him. He built and he worked for 120 years. Now that's a real church plan. 120 years. Sometimes we get tired of the work, but God is there to buoy us up. He's there to give us strength. Lives are at stake. 120 years. It's the longest sermon ever preached, huh, Eric? In fact, fact, I almost titled this message, The Longest Sermon Ever Preached. My children told me, Dad, you better not. No one will come to church. (laughs) Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. Take with you these animals, seven clean and two unclean. And they were to take them into the ark. And so this miraculous thing happens. All these animals go in the ark. Noah and his family go into the ark. They are the only ones. The door of mercy was still open. The invitation was there. For 120 years, he had been preaching. Do you think people did not know what was happening? Jesus said that they were unaware. Unaware. Who's unaware? All these animals go into this boat. There's no water to float it on. No one has ever built a boat like this. Unaware? They were unaware because they were self-focused. They were looking at their navel. They weren't aware of the events that were happening around them. Noah was aware because Noah was paying attention to the times in which he lived. When God told him to build an ark, he built an ark. When God told him to go into the ark, he went into the ark. Noah was alive to the times in which he lived. Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. There will be some who are alive to the times in which they live. Do you know the times in which you live? Do you know that the second coming is soon, even at the doors? We have a work to do. Are you alive to the voice of God? When he says build, are you building? 
When he says preach, are you preaching? When he says go in, are you going in? We have a work to do. If we fail in our work, there will be some that will perish because of it. Noah was faithful and he found in God salvation. Chapter 7, verse 10. And after seven days, the, water, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. They went into the ark, and they were in there. Day one. What's going to happen? Day two. No rain. Day three. The people are outside. Like he said it was going to rain, this silly old guy. Day four. Day five. Day six. People were outside the ark, eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, not knowing their probation had closed. Before the destruction of the earth happened, before the outpouring of floodwaters on the earth, their probation had closed. This, to me, is one of those most solemn, serious messages of, of Noah, that there will come a time according to my understanding of the Bible, at the end of time, before Jesus comes back, he will have determined all who are going to receive rewards. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22, he's bringing his reward with him. He's determined who is getting what reward. And when he comes back, he will have his reward. That means sometimes before he comes back, the decision to choose to follow him and receive award, an award reward has ended. We don't know when that is. We will continue eating. We will continue drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Not knowing. But we don't have to be unaware. The scripture says that now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Don't put it off to some future event. God has given grace abundantly. You can look around you. You can see the world is wicked, just like Jesus said it would be. Don't put it off. Now is the day of salvation. Genesis 8 verse 20, after the flood was over, they came up out, they came up out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and made a sacrifice there. Noah's family worshiped God from the beginning to the end. Every nail they drove into the ark was a symbol of their devotion, commitment, and worship to God. Every board they cut was a symbol of their devotion and commitment and worship to God. Is your life centered on worshiping God? Do you give praise to him for what he has done in your life? Tilly Smith, 10 years old. Notice the water bubbling. And then she saw it draw back from the shore. And she remembered two weeks before her geography teacher, maybe it's not geography, taught her about tsunamis. And she recognized, this is what he taught me about. And he said, when we see this, we need to run to higher ground. She told her mom and she told her dad. And they said, Tele, you're confused. They didn't believe her. No, mom, seriously, dad, seriously. They said, no, we're not, we're fine. We're gonna go play on the beach. She said, I'm leaving, I'm going up here. And she left them. Her parents were a little put out by that and they went to talk to her, her mother went to talk to her further and she says, mom, there's a tsunami and there's gonna be a big wave that comes. Everyone has to get off the beach. Her mom's like, well, maybe she's right. What would it hurt just to take her at what she says? So she told her husband, she's Tilly's probably right. We should probably get off the beach and let others know. So they alerted the security guards. They went around telling people, hey, there's a tsunami that's coming. We need to go and get to higher ground. The word went out and everyone began to move. All of them began to move and they went up to higher ground. Phuket Beach, Indonesia. It's one of the only beaches in all of Indonesia where no one died. There was over 100 people that would have died that day but one little girl knew the signs. She knew what she was seeing, and she wasn't afraid to speak up. She knew where to go to get help. She knew where to go to be above the danger zone. 
and she and her family were saved that day. Do you know the danger signs? Are you aware of where you are in time? Do you see the frothing on society? Do you see that one nation is angry against another? Is Jesus about to return? Is your family full of grace? Do you struggle with evil thoughts, evil desires, just like they did in the days of Noah? There is help to be found in the Redeemer that can be found by faith in his word. This is a solemn message because my supposition is that there's someone in here that needs to make things right between them and God. That's something in your heart you're holding back. Jesus is coming soon and he has said that we must confess our sins for he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Likely there's someone in here that has sin or sins that they need to confess and make right between them and God. Jesus is worth everything, right? Worth absolutely everything. We should not wait till tomorrow. We should not wait till another day. We should not wait till this afternoon. We need to make things right with God. So I'd like to make an appeal if there's something in your life that isn't right between you and Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off to another day. Don't continue the round of eating and drinking and whatever. Say, no, I want God in my home more than anything else. There might be lots of attractive things out there, but I want him more than anything. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads and close your, close your eyes. And if you are there and there's something in your heart that you want to make right between you and Jesus, I'm gonna invite you to slip down to the front down here. Come on down, God bless you. No one's looking, it's between you and Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Our righteousness is from Him. Our cleansing is from the blood of the Lamb. Amen. God bless you. I want to make another appeal here if you want to continue coming forward. There's any parents who feel convicted. Come forward. Come on, come on forward. Come, give people some space. Come on up here. Come on up here. There's any parents that want to stand up today to signify before God that they want to lead their household in his ways after the pattern that he has designed. I'd like to invite you to come forward. If you're already here, God bless you. If there's any parents that say, I want to stand for righteousness in my home. I want the love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, self-control, meekness to be in my home. I want to lead after God's ways you to come forward. Amen. So I have an appeal for those of you that aren't married yet. You've heard today clearly that this was one of the reasons that brought about the destruction of the world, that broke apart societies where young people were choosing to marry someone outside of their faith. If you're willing to commit, like it said in Nehemiah, to take an oath that you will marry a believer and you will follow God's leading in that. I'd like to invite you to stand up right where you are. If you're not married and you're willing to take an oath that you will marry a believer and follow God's leading, man, God bless you.
God bless you. I'd like to invite anyone else that would like to stand to commit before God that you want his righteousness in your life, that you want Jesus more than anything, that you want to surrender your life fully and completely. I just invite you to stand where you are. Stand and commit before God of your dedication and commitment to him. Amen. God bless you. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you see the decisions that were made today. Decisions based on your word, on your spirit, on a desire for something better, on a cleansing that only you can give, on a willingness to follow as you're leading, on a willingness to stand firm, faithful, in a dark and corrupt generation. Lord, do your work in these lives. We know that you want to do a mighty work in this world, and today, Lord, this room, this small, tiny, little church, these people in this room, this small, little group of people we're standing because we want Jesus to be glorified on this earth. We want Jesus to come back soon. We want those who haven't experienced the grace and the goodness of God to experience the peace and the passes all understanding. Lord, use us, whether it's one year or 10 years or 120 years. Use us, Lord, fully and completely. May there be nothing left. May we give you everything. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.